Before you dive into this exciting episode, I'd like to let you know about the Squash Playbook, your tactical blueprint for success. The playbook is written based on the most common solutions I have given to the people I coach over the last 20 years. It is the ultimate how-to guide for any squash fan, and you can grab a free copy right away by visiting squashplaybook.com or clicking on the link in the show notes. Are you freaked out by that hard-hitting hacker? Frustrated with running out of ideas against the relentless retriever? Want to close out matches more clinically when in the lead? Or do you need some mental tools to overcome bad calls by referees? These answers plus many more have been brought together all in one place for the squash community. The Squash Playbook is a practical toolkit that breaks down over 40 scenarios that are most commonly faced on the court. Each scenario provides the psychology and the strategy needed to get a positive result. Each chapter wraps up with the top six key points to keep things simple and practical. The aim of the book is to transform reactive players into proactive tacticians. I focus on breaking down complex situations into straightforward, effective strategies for those high pressure moments in a match. So why not grab your copy now and step onto the court next time with a clear head and a set of strategies to win those matches you know you're capable of. Please enjoy the show. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to your next episode of the podcast series. Today, I am absolutely thrilled to welcome to the show a true ambassador for the sport of squash, Charlie Johnson. Hailing from Bishop Stortford, England, Charlie has been based in the United States for the past 10 years and is currently the squash director at Bay Club Redwood Shores in California, a Team USA national coach and the founder of the Charlie Johnson Squash Academy, CJSA. He is fiercely passionate about growing the game of squash and, 
more importantly, shaping world-class individuals. In our conversation today, we'll be diving into Charlie's early days in the UK as a full-time pro squash player and the factors that led him to his move across the pond to the US. We'll explore the adjustments he had to make to thrive in the US squash scene and how he ultimately built an incredible coaching career. Charlie recently received a prestigious award for his coaching, and we'll be discussing the fabric and philosophy that underpins his approach to his coaching. We'll also touch on the impressive success of his academy and the guidance he offers to parents of young, talented players. A true student of the game, Charlie has an amazing process of keeping detailed notes to help him grow and develop as a coach. We'll delve into this method and discuss one of his standout philosophies. We're not teaching ordinary people how to be extraordinary squash players. We're teaching ordinary players to be extraordinary people. An incredible quote and one that I'm going to be using a lot more myself now. From handling pressure in big moments to training the mind as a junior athlete, Charlie shares his insights on the behaviors that separate the good from the great. We'll wrap up by discussing the future of junior squash in the US and where he sees the sport heading in the coming years. I am beyond excited for you to listen to the wisdom and passion Charlie brings to the table. You can follow his journey on Instagram at CJ Squash Academy, and the link will be in the show notes. So, without further ado, let's dive in and welcome the one and only Charlie Johnson. Charlie Johnson, welcome to the next episode of the podcast series. Um, we've had about a good 15, 20-minute offline chat, which we should have just recorded, shouldn't we, anyway? But um, I think an always great place to kick things off with. If you could give a brief introduction to yourself and, uh, yeah, what, what you, what's currently occupying you? Uh, hey, Jesse. Yeah, yeah, fantastic uh, connecting here. Um, yeah, I'm the squash director of Bay Club Redwood Shores, um, Team USA national coach for the junior team. And um, I run CJ Squash Academy out of Bay Club Redwood Shores. So yeah, very busy and I'm very passionate about what I do and looking forward to having a conversation with you today. Brilliant. Yeah, listen, I know we, we knew each other in the UK a bit and then you you decided to go across the pond and I want to talk about that and we connected a little bit at the recent US Junior Open. So only seems timely we sit down and, and have a good chat about this. Um, So listen, let's talk about your younger days and um, what your years were like being based in the UK as a young pro and playing full time. So any reflections on that? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was great. Great. Awesome. Awesome to connect at uh, US Open. Eh? I just just casually yeah. as it goes and, you know, it goes, you, you haven't seen someone in so long and then suddenly you see him and then you're like just catching up for like 10 years missed, missed time. So <laughs> it's great. Fun, yeah, it? From the last time I saw you was I think you were playing an inter-county match <laughs> at uh, Nottingham Squash Club. And I was like, yes. this guy's just an athlete. Just just a warrior on the court yeah very inspiring but well, um, thanks i'll send that ten dollars to you for that thanks man <laughs> <laughs> yeah memo's good but um yeah i started playing squash when i was 14 um i played every sport under the sun at that age you know rugby cricket football cross country just loved it and i was very sporty less so academic but that was kind of where my personality lied and mm-hmm. that was probably where my confidence lied as well as a person so you know, stick to your strengths. And that was really where I had my identity. So I kind of stuck yeah. to it. And as a young kid, you kind of look for your comfort zones. And that mm-hmm. was definitely a comfort zone of mine. So, you know, I loved sport. Um, so that was skateboarding. And then um, actually my best friend was like, I'm going to go play squash with my dad today. And I was like, well, I'm going to go play squash with you then because, you know, you're not going to go skateboarding with me. So I ended up going playing squash for the first time and loved it. 
And then I actually found out that the squash club was next to my house. It was about wow. 108 steps. So um, <laughs> a bar. That's a very, very yeah, specific about about <laughs> So and it was an amazing squash club, Bishop Stortford Squash Club. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this one? Just, of course, played played a few PSAs there. I think the Selbies were running it at one point. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that they, they played a big part for me as well. So I just got hooked on it and absolutely loved it. The members great. And at that age, you know, threw myself into it. Um, the Selby family were running the club at that time. And it was an amazing era for that mm-hmm. club. It was, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I left school actually at 16. So I, I, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to have this dream about being a professional squash player. And amazing. As, as you're a kid, you know, you always have a dream about being a football player or an athlete or, a, you know, and I wanted to be three things when I was a kid. I wanted to be a soldier, a fireman or a squash player. Um, <laughs> that is and, such a, a, a range by the way I love well maybe the first two not so much but then you throw the squash player and that's that's right out yeah, there yeah. I mean it's all kind of high pressure and 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 that world where you're living very close to the line and I love mm. that feeling of that rush about you know being in it you know being in the moment so then long story short basically turned pro at 16 uh, sorry uh, left school at 16 kind of was figuring it out and then went pro at 17. Mm-hmm. The Selby family were amazing. Lauren coached me. Karen was the manager. Paul was the coach as well at the club and the Selby's. And then Daryl was playing. So mm-hmm. got some lucky hits of Daryl every now and then. And then as I decided to take it a little bit more seriously, I had to base myself with some more players. So then started to go to Lee Drew mm-hmm. over at um, Ardley Hall. Um, and he had a great crop of players there. So I learned a lot under him and um, still worked with the Selbys and just had this amazing, like, factory. Well, not factory, but family, okay. um, which was awesome. So basically, from then on, um, started to get a bit better and started to form my identity as a professional squash player, which was kind of, you don't know how to do it. You know, like, mm. one day you're just a normal person and the next day you buy the PSA membership and you're like, I guess I'm a professional squash player now, which is hmm. no one tells you how to do it in a way. Hmm. Did that just, I want to pick up on something there. Cause I've had this conversation quite a lot. The label of being a professional, sometimes that in itself is the golden handcuffs. Cause all of a sudden you need to act a certain way, behave a certain way. You need to get results of this nature against someone who's not a pro. How dare you lose to someone who's not a pro. Did that happen to you at any point? Spawn, spawn. It became like they have a saying in soccer, a shirt is heavy. Hmm. Like I just, you know, decided to be a professional squash player and then said I had to win every club match, every league match. And it was the worst thing that ever. So if I can go back, I would 100% change that. Um, the pressure I put on myself and just said, you know, you've got loads of time, but at that age, you think you want it all now. Totally. Um, and I didn't even know how I was going to get it. So I was just figuring it out, but interesting. Yeah, that is exactly that feeling. Um, did you did you ever have that realization? Maybe not as that younger player. Obviously, maybe then going into your twenties, around maybe the concept of like, let's just like decompress this. Let's be able to let it go. Or did that never happen? Because personally, I really also struggle with that. The label of professional, but then actually trying to flow and be at in Zen with something as well. Like, did you ever manage to yeah. find that sweet spot? Uh, eventually I did, but it was a lot, lot later, actually probably more towards like probably one or two seasons, literally one or two seasons. I had that sweet Mm -hmm. spot where I was just enjoying what I was doing, but I didn't feel desperate. And I felt like, you know, it will come when it comes and then you start to get a couple of results and then you start to relax a little bit 
and you're like, I like, I like this feeling, but when it's not going well, you, you kind of get a bit desperate. And I feel like that's when you're younger as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, I ended up getting to about age 20 and I was doing all right. And I got a really bad injury in my back and I couldn't play for six months. And at this point in my life, it was a really uncomfortable point. I had a lot of things personally. I had my parents getting divorced. I had a, a long-term girlfriend I broke up with. I feel like I didn't really have a, a back backup really because I left, left school early and to be a professional squash player and then you're injured and you can't do that. So what do you do? And it was all scary at this point. And um, at this point, you surround yourself with really good people because then that's what's going to get you through the tough times. And I just had the Selbys and they were amazing. I had some really good members at the club, which were amazing. And now I look back at, being a coach I'm like well now it's your time to step up and be that person to someone else um to pay back a little bit and they got me to a place where you know they gave me an opportunity they're like hey I know this lady in San Francisco her name's Kim um she's the Bay Club squash director mm-hmm. she's actually now the CEO for US squash mm-hmm. and she was looking for a pro and, and they were like hey you don't have to you know go and move to America but you maybe go out there for two weeks and see what it's see what it's like, do some coaching, get a bit of money, come back, reassess. And I was, I was like, but I can't even afford a flight. They're like, well, we'll, we'll take care of that. Oh, nice. So I call Kim up. Hey, Kim, Charlie, she doesn't know the person. I, she doesn't know me. Um, hey, Karen said, you know, I can come out and see you. She's like, yep, yeah, perfect. Book a flight. I'll pick you up from the airport. That we, You know, at that age, nothing to lose. Incredible. How cool is that? Got on the flight, landed in San Francisco, big wide world by myself. Uh, Kim wasn't there. I'm like, oh God, this is this is a this is a problem. Gave her a call. Hey Kim, it's Charlie. Wondering if you could um, you know, if you're gonna pick me up. And I was like, <laughs> I only have like 20 bucks to my name. And um, she's like, Yeah, I'll be there in half an hour. Like two hours later, she rocks up. Next day, we're driving to San Francisco. She gives me a lesson to do. She's listening out the back of the back of the court. She's around the corner and she's listening to me give this lesson. I come off. And I'll never forget the kid's called Chili. He's got like red hair, just crazy funny kid. And um, he had a brilliant lesson. She comes off. She's like, that was a brilliant lesson. Do you want a job? And I was like, no. And I'm 20 years old at this point. I didn't really know what I want. And it just gave me this security and to that, that was a pathway. Hmm. So obviously I took the job and called my mom and said, I'm moving to America. And she said, go for it. That Um, is incredible. What a story. What a story moved out and um, then started a fresh chapter. Dude, and we're going we're gonna to jump into all of this. And thanks for kind of taking us on that. A couple of things I want to just stay with there for a sec. Um, quitting school at 16 or quitting school, maybe that's the wrong thing, but stopping school at 16 to maybe pursue this. How did that conversation go with your parents? Oh my God. I, uh, this was brilliant. Actually, I remember the first day that I you know, had left school. Um, never forget it. Stayed with me for the rest of my actually to address that a bit earlier I had that conversation with my dad my dad took me downstairs in the office and he, you know have a conversation he's like so how are you gonna um pay a mortgage how are you gonna have kids you can't play squash and do this and it just goes against what he thought was possible mm-hmm. and that kind of put the chip on my shoulder to say I'm gonna prove you wrong and I always had that in the back of my head when someone said you can't mm-hmm. and I think that goes for everyone it's a lesson it's not going to be the thing that knocks you down. It's actually going to be the thing that builds you up. Love it. Um, so I always remember that. And I, my dad kind of trusted me here, but I kind of just um, used that as 
as my as my you know chip on my shoulder and then mm. from there um i mean it was a it was it was a bit scary but mm. i think i think you just got to trust yourself really and yeah. and, and, and not look back was there I'm sure there was, was there, how much support did you get from your parents at that point? Yes. There was like the chip on the shoulder and I'm going to prove you wrong. And here we go. But end of the day, you're, you're their son. Like how did that then go? Like being just purely a son at a 16, 17 year old age. Mm, there was, there was not a lot of support there. And it wasn't because, you know, that they weren't there to give it. It's just, they were busy. They were busy with their own lives, trying to pay a mortgage and trying to do this and do that and raise my two brothers. And there's a lot going on. So yeah it kind of gave me the space to go and pursue it myself, which was good. I got a part-time job, cleaned the squash course, you know, cleaned the bar at the club, worked in a gym and just made it happen because that was my dream. And if you want it so badly, you're going to go and find a way to make it happen. It's you got your talk and you got your actions and sometimes people's actions don't reflect what they say. Mm. So, and I didn't know that at that point, I never heard that saying, but yeah, that was, that was kind of leaving 16 was not something I was scared of. I think now, but nowadays it's a lot bigger, scarier if you do that. What, what did you do? Did you go university or what was your... Uh, no, I, um, again, I, I was quite close to going to Harvard. I sat the SATs. I, I got the, the right amount of kind of grades. Huh. And then right at the time, this was when I think Terry Linker was the only person who had ever done like the college and gone pro. Mm-hmm. I was so desperate to go pro because um, I got to the quarterfinals of the final of the British Open in my final year. So I was like, actually, there might be something there. So I decided to gap year um, at 18, but same thing had, you know, 500 pounds in my pocket for my folks was like, there we go. They did help and support in the background as well. But yeah, I moved to Broxbourne, John Milton with uh, Rod Durback, Mark Shallon, Alistair Walker, that kind of lot. And it was incredible. But same story, man. I I was up at 5.30 in the morning sweeping the co-op floor to start with to earn some money. I would then often open the club in the morning and then, you know, then you know, there was the other people there and then I'd work the bar shift at night. And yeah, I did that for a solid year. And man, it like it, it teaches you groundedness, humbleness. You don't get above your station. All my mates were partying, going to university. A lot went to the U.S. college system at that point. So um, yeah, kind of, I, I feel some some similar resonate um, kind of things yeah. we connect on on that. Um, but yeah, hard man. And again, slight chip on the shoulder. It was like wasn't a chip on the shoulder from trying to prove my parents wrong. They were massively supportive. But it was like, yeah, like it was like you know, I heard rumors like, yeah, you can't do it, and you just you're a good athlete, but you don't know how to play squash. I was like, yeah, just hold like hold my beer. I'm gonna give this a good old crack. Yeah. And yeah, first year went well. I yeah. I kind of um you know cracked the top 200 in my first year. I thought, eh, if I want to go to college now, it goes all back in that. So anyway, and I'm not making this about me at all because I know not at all. But <laughs> but it, it's about it's about also like not getting the silver spoon, mm. and that can help you and hurt oh. you having too much. That, that adds pressure. I had no pressure. You know, even mm. in, in a different way, you had pressure in a different way because you were doing it yourself. You weren't letting anyone else down apart from yourself. Yep. And I think that's a good thing and a bad thing when you look at it. It is. it's very different nowadays. It is, I know. And we're going to get into that as well. Yeah. That's what we're unpacking before we start a recording. So how was this transition? You know, life as a, as a, were you an Essex lad? Would you call yourself an Essex? Yeah, yeah Essex lad. Um, I played for Hertfordshire and okay. lived. Uh, actually right on the border my my dad lives in Hertfordshire dad lives uh, mum lives in Stansted so it's Hertfordshire and Essex but I chose okay. to play for Hertfordshire because the club okay. was Hertfordshire but yeah 
Six were always a better team for us. So, <laughs> so yes, yeah, so you kind of with your Hertfordshire slash Essex blood. How was the transition to US life, US squash? You know, all of these, you know, I know you went West Coast, which will maybe quite a different feel to the East Coast. How did that go for you as a 20-year-old? Yeah, it was, it was interesting because, like I said, you turn the page. And when I moved there, I moved there really young. And I think there's nothing more exciting but scary at the same time than when you turn a page and you have a fresh start in life and I don't think this happens very often as you get a little bit older people hear about your you know you can't hide from the past so much but when you're a little bit younger I say you grow up in a small town you go to university that's an opportunity to turn the page and be a new person because no one knows who you are and it was kind of like the same thing that I had when I moved to America no one knew who I was so all these things that I wasn't very confident with about myself you know my spelling's not great or this isn't perfect no one knew that I had an opportunity to not hide that but recreate how I wanted people to see this Mm -hmm. so it was really refreshing and honestly every day was a new day which is amazing to have and I was in an amazing environment Bay Bay Club's amazing the people you come across in the day-to-day Silicon Valley and you know i I normally used to text people to organize my lessons. You know, these people would email me, which was new. Or <laughs> people would always be talking about fundraising or capital or wow. a startup and being very creative. And that environment is just really important for me. And that was that was a great growth area for me. So it showed me the world isn't as big as the small town you grew up in. It's, mm-hmm. it's very uncomfortable. And I went from maybe being a small fish uh, in a small pond to being a really small fish in a massive <laughs> pond. And it was um, a great, a great place to learn and grow, but figuring a lot out, you know, like to learning how to coach really honestly, which was a big part of learning. I coached a lot of adults mm-hmm. from 20 to 25. And it taught me a lot because adults, when they, when you coach them and they're very receptive to giving you feedback mm-hmm. and you could teach you know, one swing to one player and be like, I got that wrong, but adults don't mind that because they love just the amount you're giving to them because they appreciate that. Sometimes junior kids, they don't understand how much you're giving to them, but adults, they see that and maybe they appreciate that. And that taught me, you know, movement, swing, patterns of play, because you just have your guinea pigs and you're just going to try it out with some 45-year-old dude who just wants a good sweat and, you know, oh, that works. Brilliant. I'm going to write that down, take that into my notes. And that was building my framework with how to coach really and then started to go to some more junior tournaments and sitting next to coaches and just picking their ear and it was just a good foundation to learn and I started to play as well for that 20 to 25 I played a lot more on the tour and oh, kind of nice. playing and coaching mm-hmm. and it was really kind of like that um not university side where I was just learning but mm-hmm. I was getting a good balance between playing, coaching people and just learning myself and getting outside of that comfort zone, which was big. Love that. So yeah. a little story that, that um, just reflects on you with learning how to coach. I, 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 you know, not to sound too arrogant. I had quite a good little forehand drop shot. So one of the members from the club, I was only like, maybe saying like 20 years old, was like, brilliant. Can you teach me that drop shot? So I was like, yeah, yeah. You know, paid for his lesson up front. He was a 25 quid. I was like, oh, great. Okay. Like first proper lesson I'm giving. And 
I basically tried to teach him this forehand drop shot and I completely hashed everything up. He left the court about 20% worse than he stepped on the court. I had no idea how to coach the shot. I could play it, but it was one of the best lessons I ever had because then I went and reflected. I wrote it down. I, I gave him his money back at the end, by the way. I said, I'm sorry. I, I, I couldn't accept it. I was like, but he was so grateful. He was like, okay, well, I'm going to be booking more with you. I'm like, dude, I'm so sorry. I took you back like 20%. He literally was hitting drop shots into his shoelaces at the end of it. It was so bad. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that the learning curve, it was like, it really shook me. I'm going, I know how to play the shot. I can do it without thinking, but I cannot actually coach this thing. It's like, what is going on here? But yeah, then just iterated, iterated, iterated. And yeah, I think that's, you know, coaches having a growth mindset. So, so important. And yeah, I love, I love yeah. your stories of reflecting on that. That's really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. so just goes to say like, and also coaching adults taught me a lot because you, you'd have an investment banker one time, you'd have a, a surgeon the next time, a, a housewife wow. next time. Mm -hmm. And different people needed a different kind of lesson. You know, the surgeon who'd just been in surgery for eight hours didn't want to take on information. He just wanted to switch off and sweat. The housewife, you know, just wanted to get some information, get something new, get something yeah. off her shoulders. You know, the guy who was just working investment banking wants to be competitive. So Love you're that. learning different skills and communications and different kinds of lessons as well and that was that taught me a lot about teaching the animals side of things oh i love yeah. that man very very um athlete centered we hear that being thrown around a lot but that that's genuinely mm. true like how you as a coach you know even just reading the body language of the adult or the junior coming mm. on and how you go oh actually i'm not going to bring out the stick today it's more about let's get the arm around the shoulder and you know make yeah. sure that they're okay you're like geez are you okay and if they answer quickly I like the thing like asking, are you okay three times? Because, you know, mm. the first time they just go, yeah, I'm fine. And just carry on. It's like, ask it a second time. They might kind of think, and actually third time, sometimes you need to go there. Are you really okay? Because if you sense mm. that, I'm sure you do this anyway, but I quite like that three rule of, of asking people when you're sensing something's not quite right. Um, oh, I had a good story, but I, <laughs> yeah, I had a very good friend of mine. Um, he'd always say, you good. And if I said to him, I'm good. And if it was a very short answer and he said, I, I didn't, I didn't want that answer. I want to know if you're actually good or how was your day? Like, give me more than just, I'm good. Like, so I do this with the kids as well. Like, you know, I'm saying, how are you? And if they're like, yeah, all right. Or like, I'm good. Like, no, like I'm asking you, how are you? Like, what's good? Like, are you feeling good about your life? Like if they don't elaborate on that and it just teaches simple things to respect people's questions and, and answers and you know we go on court and had trying to have the lesson led by the player in a way as well but not so much that you're being so submissive that you don't have the idea already but you want them to have some control because people are always going to follow the plan that they create you know if you want someone to follow a plan let them create the plan yeah, <laughs> in a way yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly yeah yeah, so they're, they're more invested in their journey at that point, aren't they? It's exactly yeah. that. It's like, you know, yeah, there's a whole bunch of avenues. Buy it. There's a buy in. Buy it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. so you're kind of tricking them to, to get into <laughs> <laughs> you, you know where yeah. you want them to go and you're just slowly nudging them along that yeah. path with them. Yeah, yeah, which is great. Little, yeah. yeah, you're dropping them in. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like leaving those breadcrumbs along the line, which I think is cool. Mm. Um, so I'm going to fast forward a little bit and then we're going to reverse engineer a bit of this, Charlie. Um, listen, you won a pretty incredible award really recently for your coaching and just massive testament to you and the growth that you've had. Um, can you tell us more about this? Thanks. Yeah, thank you, mate. Um, yeah, I not 
kind of out of the blue. I didn't know it was going to happen really until about three days before. And it hadn't sunk in until about a week after when every, all the noise dies down and you're kind of like, hey, like, what is this? What does it mean? It was a Development Coach of the Year award, which is uh, something I feel really proud about because it's not just me. It's, it's, it's a lot of factors. It's the parents, it's the players, it's the coaching team. It's all the work the last couple of, well, the last five years really of putting that into it to get to this point now. Sometimes when you have a success, I'm not saying this is a crazy big success, but you have to sit back and enjoy it because it took so long to get where we are. Mm-hmm. Taking the club from you know a five-court club to then a six-court club from a 20-player program to 80-player program from one coach to five coaches, it takes time. So reflecting on that was amazing. Um, it's been a great journey. It was, it was you know, moving here when I was 20, when California squash wasn't really on the scene. Mm-hmm. And just looking back at 10 years of where, how far we've come, I think it's been, it's been an amazing journey so far. But now saying what, we've, what got you here is now where is it going to get us next? Um, um, we've got this amazing foundation how, how do we push it again mm-hmm. but without burning out now? So about, you know, being authentic. So that was very authentic the last 10 years, especially the last five years. So how do we create another 10 years, but make it authentic? Mm. So that's really where I'm at right now after absorbing the, the award. It's like, brilliant. That's amazing. If I want more success, how do we keep it authentic and recreate it? Uh, and going again so now I'm just kind of working with the team working with the players and um but yeah just to acknowledge the players you know the parents the coaches the players have a part to play but they wouldn't be there without the parents because the parents drive them there after work after a long day so you have to give the credit to the parents because the parents are doing the work and all the parents expect is everything you have so that's not much to ask for because they're giving everything they have. So then when they drop the kids off, what do they expect from the kids? All I want is everything you have. If you've got 50%, I want hundred percent of 50% when you show up for your academy or your lesson, that's all I expect. And then the kid goes home, you know, all I expect was hundred percent of everything you have. And you go home because it doesn't need to be hundred percent all the time. Exactly. It just needs to be, you give what you have. And some days I, you know, great I think I heard this from a coach a very high level coach and they were like you know I only have an eight out of ten minimum lesson I only give an eight out of ten minimum lesson I'm like that's brilliant but when you're giving five or six a day Mm. it's really hard to keep them standards really high but you find different ways about doing it you you know a ball machine session a pressure session a feeding different kind of pattern session but you're still trying to work with them high high standards exactly and you're trying to work smarter around it instead of just beating yourself up every session. But yeah, iron sharpens iron as well. There's a great crop of kids, a great crop of parents, a great crop of coaches. And there's another saying like nothing lasts forever right now. And I do believe that it's an amazing time right now, but Mm -hmm. understanding like there will be a rebuild. So enjoy it right now. And then we'll go through and rebuild. And then hopefully we get to where we go again. But, um, yeah, it was crazy. And a big congrats to Luke Butterworth as well, who received the National Coach Award. I think he was a he is a massive role model to me. He's a couple of years older. And he really taught me from looking from the outside 
what high performance and world-class looks like because he does it with a smile on his face mm-hmm. and he has such good energy. And you just know that everyone who goes to him enjoys squash. Exactly. And I think that taught me a lot. Yeah. Made amazing. It. Amazing. Well, listen, congratulations, first of all, and, and long may the next 10 years flourish in a same rebuilding way. But so many cool little avenues I can explore with that. But one thing that just came to mind, it, it's a great quote. I only came across this recently. I'm talking about 10 years and being patient and, and building it up. But the quote goes, patience is not simply the ability to wait. It's how we behave while we're waiting. You know, so that's kind of mm-hmm. proactive patience, isn't it? Like you like mm-hmm. can't just go, okay, well, 10 years, I'm going to have this amazing program, but it's like the proactivity of what you're doing sounds incredible. And and like, it's, it's basically flourished to that, but yeah, like if you're just patient and you're passive with it, that, that doesn't really get the results. So no, good yeah. stuff, man. And I think that that links us really nicely into your, you probably mentioned a few of these. I'm interested mm-hmm. about the fabric of your coaching philosophy. I'm, I'm always looking for coaching philosophies. They evolve, they mm-hmm. change the whole time. Um, putting you on the spot here, you might not know, but, but how would you, you know, what's your elevator pitch for, you know, mm-hmm. kids that come to you, your academy, how would you, how would you speak to someone in the, in the time it takes to get up an elevator? Okay. It, for me is very simple. And I actually haven't thought about that elevator pitch and analogy before, but is, is world-class people make world-class squash players. Um, and that for me is the most important thing if you're a world-class person and in different ways, mm-hmm. uh, in all these different ways, and we're trying to not just focus so much on the squash side of it all the time, to be a high-performance person, to be a high-performance athlete, you need to understand it comes from you and maximizing your potential as a person and having some character. Character is a huge one, which I really focus on a lot. Having a personality, um, Timing is really important to how you're delivering conversations. Timing on a squash court is really important. Um, Being funny, uh, you know, on a squash court, not saying you need to be funny, but you need to know what is just needs to be laughed off and what you Mm. need to fight. And that's really important. But yeah, world-class people are world-class squash players. And that's what we build our analogy and foundation Mm. and philosophy off of. It starts with the player or the person. It's so funny. It's almost like you've seen my notes because, um, again, jumping a little bit ahead here, you very kindly shared these incredible notes that you keep. And I'm going to unpack that in a second. But the one that I wrote down that stood out to me the most, we're not teaching ordinary people how to be extraordinary squash players. We're teaching ordinary players to be extraordinary people. Wow. Like literally like you pretty much said that. And that's the one I picked out on. Cause I was like, that one sounds incredible. And you know, what? I've, I've got to, I'm going to steal that with pride. Charlie Johnson's going to get, <laughs> even if it wasn't originally from you, you're going to get the kind of credit for that. It was, one, a, right? it was a similar Starbucks quote. We're not, uh, we're not a coffee business serving uh, people. We're a people business serving coffee, Yes, which I really like. Uh, so I reworded it a little bit in terms yeah. of that. Yeah, so was that, was that was that your is that your one basically like that yeah i turned that around actually, a little bit yeah, yeah. Oh, incredible yeah. Which, it sounded so good i was like he's got it from bill belichick or someone like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well done that's incredible there we go talking yeah. talking to the kids more about that and covid was really special for this because it gave us time to really talk mm-hmm. uh, and bring in a lot of individuals together because you think we all have these intrusive thoughts or we all think differently and it's brilliant to bring a lot of people together in a group and a, and a program mm-hmm. and then having a conversation and, and learning from each other and that really was the spark that set everything off 
So talk, just, talk me through that process. What what did you do during COVID? So we had um so we had a girls academy and a boys academy, and we had the girls academy, which was ages like eleven to eighteen. And the boys academy was the same thing, 11 to 18. And we had them all together, all different abilities. Mm. You know, you have a, a 12 year old on court with an 18 year old. And I used this captain system in, in the academy. And it, it's not really based off of levels. It's based off of, you know, you just go on court with anyone. And that's your job to do is to pay back a little bit, but also inspire the next generation. It's not the whole session, but it's, you know, say 30 minutes out of the two hours of the session, you're going to be on court with someone below your level, at your level, above your level. Mm. But in that blessing or that that COVID era, which was a really tough era for a lot of, a lot of people, and we found we got really lucky because we had this amazing group of people, individuals, and then the individuals became a family. Mm. Um, and basically, we just started to have these really awesome conversations just about life and about challenges and uncomfortable conversations. Uh, there was a lot of tears and a lot of um, characters come out of that. But then again, I you know had a, one girl which showed up. She was about 80 in the country. She finished runner-up in the Nationals number two when the beginning of COVID was like 80. She finished uh, when we came out of COVID, played the first nationals. She mm -hmm. got to the finals and lost to another girl in the program. And Incredible. it's not a testament to the coaching. She worked her butt off, but her character was started here and blossomed to this. Mm -hmm. And that's what really, in my eyes, got her to that final because she was in uncomfortable situations in these tournaments. Uh, she was down in matches. And how do you find your way back? It's that fighting the fear fighting the uncomfortable situations having some passion it's hard to teach this but mm -hmm. it's all about kind of holding the mirror up at the end of the day I love video analysis but I also love having a conversation and asking questions I'm always sending them podcasts and nice. giving them books to read because learning that you're not the only one as well and how you you're thinking these intrusive thoughts, yeah. you're not the only one. No. And when you put a lot of individuals together, um, not saying it's only girls, but the girls Academy was amazing for that. Cause they really helped each other be like, Hey, like I'm, I'm, I'm having that thought as well. Mm. I get scared when I'm up in the game. Okay. Why do you get scared when you're up in the game? Oh yeah. Because I've got more to lose. So I love it. You're a front runner, but you've got to go be the hunter when you're down in the score and up in the score. Mm. So it reflects back to, little things like tweaking that in a conversation was huge. Amazing. And did you, and do you find within that group setting players were open and receptive? Cause sometimes in a group it's all of a sudden, Oh, maybe even with girls, like, no, I'm not going to share this. I, I, I don't want to look, I don't want to embarrass myself in front of my tribe and feel low on that totem pole. But you felt that there was an openness with what you were doing. I think that's a very important thing to understand. Not everyone's going to open up straight away, but how we got that trust from them is us as coaches showed them 110% who we are. Hmm. So I showed them my vulnerabilities. I showed them all the mistakes I've made, not on court, but off court. You know, I, I, you know, guys, I left school at 16. I wish I'd have stayed in this. I wish I'd have done that. I regret this. Hmm. I didn't have that silver spoon, but you have this opportunity. You can go and do that. And then they're like, oh, wow. Like you're, you, you made it this far and you don't yeah. seem that messed up or that bad, but, Oh, I can do that. So it empowers them to 
believe in themselves. I've got opportunity here. I, if I do this, I might get there as well. And then using that captain analogy about using, say, like a, I had a very good under 19. She was going to college the next year and she was a role model, but I got her paired up with one of the younger kids. She was, say, 11 years old. So you have an 18 year old captaining an 11 year old and they're leading the way because sometimes you as the coach, they don't want to look at you like a parent. They don't mm -hmm. want to trust you, but they'll trust another person in the group or a peer in the group or a younger player. So you kind of have a buddy system. So then that buddy's always looking out for them. They can go to that person in the group and feel comfortable. It was kind of weird. Like you've got the younger group and the older group and they kind of separate. But when you start to give the buddies, they start to mingle together. And then that, that friendship born uh, spawns. Mm. It's brilliant. Incredible. And like, yeah. just think of the skill set that that 18 year old is learning. Do you know, like, like maybe it's all a, at certain point, it's all like take, 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 but like you flipping the roles, you're kind of going, well, no, you like you're giving back now and you're figuring out how to give, not forcing anyone to give back. But I love that. And, and I also like your idea of, yeah, like vulnerability, like, like when you can lay yourself bare and be like, Hey, listen, yeah, I messed up on these are the things in my life that haven't gone so well. It's like, yeah, well, he's human or like, you know, we can get to that point. We can get wherever we want to go. It's not all butterflies and rainbows and unicorns the whole way along, isn't it? And it's kind of understanding that. So that's incredible. Yeah. Well done, man. It's amazing when the kids start doing that as well, when the kids start coming in and being like, Hey, I messed up, not to you, but in front of the group. <laughs> and they're like, sort of not knocking themselves down but also just being really honest with each other and being like hey that's okay i i messed up on that test today as well mm. or i didn't have a good day at school as well yesterday but you know how i got over it i came to squash and i left my baggage outside when i came through the doors Love and it. that's coaching they're yeah. coaching each other which is a great environment because you yeah. could say that exact same message in the exact same tone but it might not resonate it's like yeah well what does he really know kind of thing is like but you get it from that you know you're kind of empowering those young young minds those young people and it's incredible man i'm uh, excited that we're having this conversation i'm i'm here absorbing and learning the whole time um <laughs> so listen you did like i said you kindly shared some incredible notes with me um Tell me about this process of yours. What, what's it all about? Where did it start and the whole story behind it? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, it's kind of random. Like 2018, I went to my first British Junior Open with Team USA and I was the youngest coach on the trip. And you've got, you know, Wael Al-Hindi, Luke Butterworth, Mustafa Assam, Laurent Arani, Rich Wade, Simba Muati. You've got some incredible coaches and then me. Like, and I, at that age, I'm just like 23, I think, 23, 24. Don't really know a lot about coaching, but 
I've got a couple of girls who are part of the trip on Team USA and I've kind of made my way on it. And I'm like, well, I better start to like scale up here and like, you know, figure figure out how I'm going to coach these really top players at British Open. So I started to basically just sit next to the coaches on the trip and just pick their brains and ask them lots of questions. And I just wrote down like, and then actually the, the best thing was about the performance reviews after they were for the players, but all the coaches shared the performance reviews. So I just took all that, uh, like the coaches feedback that they gave the players and just started <laughs> to write their feedback down being like, this sounds amazing. So just love that. learning from other coaches on that trip started that 2018 kind of like my philosophy list. Mm-hmm. And then it spawned from like looking at CEOs to coaches to not saying it's opposite but you can learn something from everyone not just looking at the ceos but looking at the people who clean the corpse like hey like how many how many hours do you work in a day they're like oh yeah this is actually my second job i'm like what like what time do you wake up in the morning you're like yeah i wake up at five and i do this and i do that and i'm like that's inspiring to me yeah that's totally you've got sometimes more to learn in that way than the people working the investment banking jobs and CEO jobs and getting the funding because it's a different scale about success for me is also doing something you love and also enjoying it well but love yeah that. that was that was kind of how the notes started and then it's delivered yes. there and just picking up people's conversations which mm. and they well, there's so many you sent me that that I, I I've I've scanned them. There's some that stood out, but for me, I'm actually going to go back with the next kind of couple of weeks and really kind of pick a few out. So thank you for sharing it. And uh, you you said something really interesting there, and and you may or may not know, but I'm really big into Stoic and Stoic philosophy and how it really lends itself to life and squash and difficulties. And um, the Stoics always talk about everyone I meet is is my master. You know, if you have that attitude that, yes, like you said, you know what, if the way you treat the garbage man should be the way you treat the CEO, you know, because you can learn from anyone with that right attitude. Um, and there's a famous story of John Wooden when he was in his 90s, you know, the, the famous basketball mm. He was sitting on the front row of this auditorium taking notes from a, a speaker who was a 30-year-old. And he got approached afterwards, like John, like, and he'd retired, like 20 years retired. It's like, John, like, like what, like, what are you doing? Like, how can you learn something from me? Like, you know, I've looked up to you my whole life and you're there taking notes from my lecture. And John was like, yeah, but I'm, I'm a lifelong student. I, I don't know everything and I never will know everything. And yeah, mm-hmm. I just think it's incredible when I hear stories of good habits that you're performing that to kind of grow yourself. And even if that thing doesn't resonate right there, it can percolate over time. It just like percolates into the subconscious, that thing that you wrote down. So yeah, anyone listening, coaches, players, hopefully that's a cool message from you. Yeah. It comes back to the kids as well, because the kids can not only learn from playing up, but they can learn from playing down. So for instance, that 18 year old, which is mentoring the the 12 year old, they can learn something from the 12 year old as well. You know, how much fun the 12-year-old has, you know, how much, you know, it's just, just amazing. Like, when was the last time you went on court and you were like, this is so much fun as an 18-year-old? Normally, it's like, oh, my God, this so is serious. so much work. And, like, so, you, you know, you're going to get better when you have more fun as well. Mm. And that's a big part of the program. It's, mm. it's it, not, like, I think you got to love it. you got to have yeah. so much passion and you got to be all in. Mm. But also, you got to leave the baggage outside. Mm. And you guys saw something, I saw something on Twitter, maybe this morning, um, but it just made me reflect that I'm kind of riffing a bit here, but it was, the question was what's the most underspoken about or least kind of verbalized thing in sports psychology. And the answer generally was like sleep and optimizing sleep, optimizing rest during the day. 
But actually, like I looked at that, and I remember just thinking, but like we don't talk enough about fun, like and how fun is a motivating factor to unlock flow, to to be really driven and motivated to do the thing. I think at a certain point, things get serious, and then things get a little bit more serious, and things get really serious. And it's like, mm. okay, the reason you began playing this game has completely disappeared, and you're not having fun anymore. So I'm glad to hear that mm. fun comes into it. So I don't know what what would what would your answer be? Maybe it's the same, but what like the thing that's not spoken about enough in maybe a performance environment? What what do you think it might be? Uh, well. I think in answer to the question, how hard it really is, okay. how what's not spoken about is how hard it really is to be at the top. Mm. That's definitely not spoken about enough because everyone's like, oh yeah, I want to be number one. I want to be at the top. And I don't think it's spoken about how hard it really is to be at the top in different ways than you think. Mm-hmm. Not, not like, just your reps, not just your hours yeah. you're putting in. There's so many emotional baggage and all of that stuff coming in now. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, people just see that what happens in the 45 minutes on court, they think, oh yeah, I can do that. That's amazing. That makes me number one. You know, if I do that, I'm going to get there. It's the, it's the three hours before and after kind of thing that separates everyone else from everyone else. And then the other thing, yeah, I, I do think it's the the passion and the enthusiasm to do the things you don't want to do, mm-hmm. because that's the thing that's not spoken about as well, because people whine and moan about all the things they don't want to do but the best players they accept it and they do it with a great attitude um because they know it's a great session in the bank and that's not talked about enough as well or done with a good enough attitude or not recognized um as well because people are like you know what i don't want to do that treadmill session but i'm going to do it for the sake of doing it the, the top players don't do it for the sake of doing it mm-hmm. they do it because they need to do it and it's something they, they have to do to get to where they want to go and there's, is there probably like, even like a bit of purpose in that as well? Like, like they're not just turning up and going, there's probably certain times you've got to turn up and just get your reps in and as a bit mindless, but actually I think the best go, yeah, I don't feel like doing it, but I'm telling myself and I'm convincing myself of this and I'm doing it with the right attitude in that moment with, I think that that's also a separator from the, the, like the really good from the best, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think identity is a really important factor in this as well, because how many people can be number one, just one and how many people want to be number one, but it's so hard. And I have this with parents and players as well. Everyone says they want to be number one, but then the actions don't buy into the same thing. And some people just will never be there, but you've got to understand your own path and your own journey about being proud about where you get to. It's looking at that player I had who went from 80 to two, you know, two was her number one. And she walked away being like, I got to the finals. Like, I made it. I made yeah, it. And yeah, I'm yeah. so proud about someone who looks at it like that to be like, I don't need to be number one because I know that was my version of being number one. Mm-hmm. And that's a really important factor to accept it. And then when you accept that, sometimes you go even further because you're not desperate to be there because when you're desperate, it doesn't happen. Um, you've got to enjoy it a little bit more mm-hmm. and come back to that. So what do you think? Yeah. What do you think? again, quite broad, but like a definition of success, not based on X's and O's, not based on a a, a ranking on a computer screen or what rating you get to. Because I think a lot of people attach success to that, that end point and go, I'm successful or I'm a failure based on that. So bit of a broad question, uh, but thoughts on definition of success is going to be different for everyone, I suppose. But what comes to mind there? A definition for success um, is probably when you get down the line later on and you look back, and you go, that that was amazing. 
I'd done something really special here because when you're in it, you always want more, I feel like. And when you get there, you know, you get to number one or you get to the top of the rankings under 17s, you want the top of the 19s or you always chase, chase, chase. But then when you finish and you maybe get to the end, the definition for success is to say, when you look back, you're really proud about what you actually done and what you actually achieved and maybe the mistakes you didn't get. But success is probably being at peace with what you did do and being really proud about what you did do. For me, it's love that it, it, it will come. Mm. It will come. And how do you how do you try rationalize with a player that is, you know, you almost know that that they're going to look back at this and be super proud, but they might be in a perfectionist mindset and they might just it's never good enough. There's there's so much of the constant chase that they're not they're not enjoying the moment. They're not celebrating the baby steps along the way. I'm sure you've come across a lot of players. Maybe me, you sometimes are guilty of that as well. I know I am that sometimes reflection is a cool thing, but any tools and thoughts about in the moment kind of, you know, success in a way or not success, maybe that's wrong, but tools in the moment for getting someone to appreciate what they're doing. Yeah. I feel like um, looking, you've got three areas, right? Past, present and future, right? You've, you've got to look back into the past and look, in, look into the details about how far you've come. Because when people are looking and they get stuck in this, like, I want this right now and I'm not getting it, you've got to look back and say how far you've actually come. And hey, yeah, last year you finished six, now you finished two. It's all very tangible things as well. I don't like that as well. But like saying, not looking so far in the future, because people always do that a lot. Mm. And then, being so focused about just enjoying the moment right now, because and then you've got to trust the process that it will come in the future as well. But people, I feel like, especially this generation live so much in the future or live so much in the past. Totally. And they always think, Oh yeah, I was so good then, or I want to be so good now. And you've got to say it will come then it will come in the future for you mm. and keep on keeping your focus and, enthusiasm and passion don't lose that because then if you keep that it will come in the future mm -hmm. so the tools is just trying to keep people's head on the shoulders and feet on the floor and humble because when you get to the top what's going to keep you to the top is that passion enthusiasm and uh that hunger i look at like nadal and and, and uh djokovic and serena williams what kept them at the top because they're being hunted every time they go on court is that energy, enthusiasm and hunger. Mm -hmm. And that's so hard to have for like five, six years, let alone one season, let alone a couple of months at the top. Yeah. So I try to teach the players, if, if you want to get there, you've got to have it. If you want to stay there, you have to have it. <laughs> um, Brilliant advice. Yeah. Love yeah. it. Love it, dude. I don't have Love it. Yeah. Good messages. So um, maybe just kind of transitioning a little bit here, um, a big topic, probably worth a whole podcast in itself, but I want to ask you about advice for parents, especially advice for parents of talented players. They see that talent, they see that initial spark. And then all of a sudden things become like, Whoa, this is like kids going to be the next greatest thing. Um, you've probably seen this loads of times. Any thoughts or advice there? Ah, oh, I, I think there's so many more things important than just being, a world-class squash player you've got to look as a parent are you teaching them the right values as a person because at the end of the day you're in a squash court 
will reflect how they are outside of the court and how they are outside of the court will reflect how they are on the court as well. So if you're being a really strict parent outside of the court, but then when they go on court, there's no uh, discipline because they're winning, you know, it doesn't work like that. So if you're consistent off the court and on the court, you'll generally see a theme where they're succeeding both sides of the court. Mm -hmm. So I love that. I think we get too wrapped up in just wanting to win, win, win. And then you get to this issue where they start dropping their grades in school because they don't care about anything apart from just winning in a squash match. But it's not really about that. You want to have consistent off the court grades, focusing on that balance, teaching good habits. And then when you get on the court as well, hopefully that reflects as well. Mm-hmm. So a, a bit of both where you're not focusing on too much one or the other mm-hmm. is trying to be consistent on and off of the court. But at the highest, at the top level, I've got some amazing parents who care more about, like I said, about the person than the player. They're trying to always focus on making sure that they're polite when they speak to the coach or they pick up from after themselves and they, um, are holding the door open for other people and the parents are, that may sound like, sound like a really stupid thing. Yes. It's not. There. It's really not. And I think that's probably the area the world we came from. Mm-hmm. If you get that stuff right, it creates discipline. It creates respect. It, it builds good character, which you need from a good top squash player and the top players generally have that. And that's something you have to teach. And that's something mm-hmm. you can teach. It's mm-hmm. not just all on the court yep. having a thousand lessons. Mm. what i what what i like and you know it's a great quote i think um have you come across the 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 boy in the mole the fox and the horse it it, it, i made it's an incredible book written for children amazing drawings but it's all adult stories um the 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 short movie came out for christmas here in the uk and it won the oscar it was it's it's one of the most emotional incredible my son's read it 15 times i read it with him all the time but one of the little quotes in there one of the little stories because it's all about these different characters that are coming up within us like the boy the mole the fox and the horse are four different character types Mm -hmm. and they go on this adventure and basically i think the boy says to the mole one day they're walking like close to the stream and says isn't it funny how everything happens on the inside but all we see is the outside basically mm-hmm. kind of like idea like you know all of our thoughts and our emotions and you know we're building stuff on the inside but we only see what's happening on the outside and i just mm-hmm. there, there's some little kind of threads that that popped to my mind there but it also links me to um to alistair mccaw you, you're aware of alistair mm-hmm. mccaw and yeah like, uh, like you know, yeah i had him had him on a couple of podcasts and he's all about the manners like holding the door open saying please and thank you and yeah. i think he reflected like he's got a quite a big you know social media following and he says whenever he puts t- tweets out he's not trying to get more followers but he says the ones that get the most comments and likes and is the ones where he gives advice on saying please and thank you he says those are the ones that that yeah. resonate with people because maybe it's a little bit of a missing piece of the puzzle in our society at the moment and yeah i'm really glad to hear that you you yeah. think you're along those lines so great advice there definitely yeah i think there's a, a really good saying as well it's the the coach sees what the player can't and the player feels what the coach can't. So communication is really important, both sides of this. Yeah. So when you're teaching a player, we had a little conversation about this before going on air, but we were talking about how we communicate to our players before the lesson or just the first like two minutes of the lesson is just down to making sure the player is in a good headspace to take on information or to be able to communicate. Because if they're having a bad day, they don't, they shut off 
you know they're mm-hmm. thinking about their test or they're thinking about their friends or they're thinking about their parent having a conversation in the car like if you don't flush that stuff out in the first two minutes and get them in the mindset where hey, you're going to listen to my voice you're going to take it in we're going to work together on this you're going to give me feedback and we're going to anal- uh, analyze what we're trying to work on getting to the end goal and if mm. they're on board with that it's a it's a partnership and it's Easy, good yeah. mm-hmm. when when the players got that in their head you need to kind of go through that get flush it out and that can take 20 25 minutes but you're not going to get to a high performance lesson when they are carrying that with them as well it goes for tournament coaching as well um so yeah it's it's really important to have that relationship and communication and and i i test the kids as well like little like visual stuff like I'd be like, so yesterday I came in in green shorts. Today uh, I'm wearing white shorts. What color are my shorts two two days ago? And nice. they'll be like, uh, what do you mean? I'm like, you've got to be visual. You've got to be switched on. You were wearing a, you, you know, your grip was yellow yesterday. It's white today. Like these little details mm-hmm. cost you in matches when you don't mm-hmm. have that. Okay, my opponent's um, taking a couple of extra seconds between the serve. Are you paying attention to that? or these little visual things that you test them on. I do that all the time, which is I kind of funny. That's cool. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to maybe hide things around the club and be like, what's <laughs> different today? You know, like, what do you see <laughs> in your environment? I love yeah. that. Um, I'm quite interested in green shorts. That's a brave man who can kind of pull off a pair of green shorts. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're the man who can do it. I don't think I'm going to that point. <laughs> um, so listen, I want to maybe spend the, maybe the, the remaining 15, 20 odd mm. minutes, if you're okay, to really get into a bit of like detail, some practical tools for mm. some some players and or parents or anyone listening to this. Um, so for me, one of the first things I want to kick off, how do you help players handle pressure in big moments? Mm. Talking about this a lot with the players, it's for me, it's about one big thing and we call it leaning in. So leaning into the pressure. So when, uh, when you're down in the first game or you lose the first game, how do you respond to that? It's all about how you respond to pressure. And most people are really scared. You know, you get an email you don't like, oh my God, I put this off. Or like, you've got this bit of homework you don't like, I'm going to put that off. And what happens to that? It builds up, it builds up. But as soon as you get this bit of pressure, if you lean into that pressure straight away, you beat it. So how you beat this pressure on a squash court is you lean in straight away. And I think this is something that we all struggle with in our lives and I'm a big 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 uh fan of the navy seals and I do a lot of reading and following my my best friend's dad was a admiral in the navy seals and he was a god what guy but some of the stories they tell you that's pressure you know a surgeon they have pressure you know life or death we're just hitting a squash ball at the end of the day um but to some of the players, that's their world. So you can't say it's not life or death because at the end of the day, it is their life or death when they're nine, 10 years old or 16 years old. That mm-hmm. is their world. So it is so much pressure. But the way you the way you solve that pressure is to lean in big nice. time and you face that. it. You mm-hmm. face it. Yeah, it's a similar thing that, that I've tried to do. It's like, you know, 
tackle the hardest thing first thing in the morning. You know, if you've got that difficult conversation, that difficult email, oh, it's a big body of work I need to get out. It's like, you know what, get up, look it in its eyes and just run towards it. You know, Paul mm-hmm. Asianti wrote that book, Run to the Raw, which is all about, mm-hmm. you know, facing your fears head on and actually running towards them. And when you can do that, boy, you you come out the other side and you, you, you've grown, you've added different levels of armor suiting to yourself. And that's incredible, isn't it? So it's not about shrinking away, leaning in. I like that. Great advice. Yeah. There's lots of little tricks you can do as well. Like I, I used to do when I was struggling with this, I started to set my alarm clock for uncomfortable times. You know, like at 6.45, I'm not a morning person. 6.45 is crazy early for me, but I would always wake up on the first ring of the alarm. I wouldn't snooze it because that's your first win of the day. So the minute that alarm goes off mm-hmm. and you're like, I'm going to go face it. I'm going to get out of bed. I beat it instead of losing to your alarm mm-hmm. again and again. And then you wake up and you're like, oh my God, this sucks. Like, so there's these little tricks around the house as well. Like you leave something out. It's like, no, put that away. But you have to have that awareness to do that as well. Mm-hmm. So you're teaching yourself that. Yeah. Well, discipline training, uh, you know, yes. the, the, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. You know, it's, it's thinking along those lines and oh, right, Charlie, you have, you come spend some time with me, 520, 5.20 <laughs> AM and cold shower. Those are my two things. It's horrible, but I to do that. <laughs> dude, it's, but again, it is literally that it's my version of that. I, I love that alarm, go and attack it. I pretty much tell myself, put your feet on the floor, just move. Like it's that first act. And that's all I need. Sometimes I just need that. You know, Peter Nichols said a great, the one time I can't remember where I heard it, but he said that like when he was training at his highest level and, you know, he's like falling asleep, like, you know, all the time and tired and shattered. He said the hardest thing to do was to tie my shoelaces because mm. as soon as he tied his shoelaces, he was going to go for the run or do the session. It's like that first act, that first 1% of something just to get break inertia goes. The first domino. Yeah. Yeah. The first what? Sorry. The first domino to fall. First domino. Yeah, I've been using domino in my coaching recently, man. Where you're kind of like vibing yeah. across. The, I'm kind of going, yeah. and I'm kind of telling my players, so which which direction are you pushing that domino? Are you pushing it yeah. towards where it's going to knock the other dominoes, or are you getting letting that domino fall the opposite? This is more for like them building a rally and kind of getting in front of their opponent. But I'm yeah. always talking about like, yeah, which which way do you want that domino to be pushed when you're in that battle that. in that moment? Yeah, good. Yeah. Man. Love it. Love it. Yeah. So, um. So training the mind as a junior athlete, and this is, you know, just within me, with the COVID, it's, it's, you know, it's a hell of a lot of work I'm doing now with a young mind. What's your thoughts on this, um, about that mm. mental training for juniors? Mm. Well, I think I actually realized the more high performance you go, the more it isn't specific, it's so hard to do. And I've actually, you know, sent probably four or five players over to you and I've seen some massive improvements in their mental, their happiness, just all round enjoyment of the court, because I feel like it's also offloading to someone who has time to do that as well. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm a squash coach, not a therapist. Sometimes we play both. Sometimes you're a squash coach and a, um, a physical trainer. Some You play so many different roles, totally. but I know I got this as, as well from Luke Butterworth. He was like, I've got a sports psychologist guy. And I was like, brilliant. I need a sports psychologist guy as well. So <laughs> you, you, I think it's really important as well. Um, I don't believe in a sports psychologist. I, mm. I don't know how you feel about this, but psychologist, full yeah. stop. Yeah. Everyone needs someone to talk to, you know, mm. as a squash coach, we can talk to them about 
the surface level things, but we really don't know much about much as squash coaches until you offload to someone else who really can help them. Mm-hmm. If they're world class, um, they'll know what they're talking about and they'll be able to unpack and get to the right areas where they need to work in. Yep. So yeah, for me, I think it's so important. I think kids in this generation and, and any college player, any athlete, any person should be speaking to someone um, if they are, if they don't know the answers themselves, because yeah, we don't know the answers and it's mm. out there. We were just talking maybe about, you know, this generation, they have so much information out there as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, reading books is amazing. Podcasts, amazing. But sometimes you need to go a little bit deeper and have that face-to-face conversation mm. over, over, the mm. conversa- uh, over the phone mm. with yeah. someone. So I think it's really important. Mm. Yeah, And yeah, it's funny, like uh, the evolution of, of the things, you know, when I first started, it was like, yeah, okay, I need to make these people better squash players. And like, I'm going to get the nuance of like, how do you play this rally? And how do you, what are you thinking? Yeah, it's like, whoa, but like some of the lessons I've given recently are all about actually like, how intentional are you during your day? Are you setting your time blocks? Where's your, where's your level of focus here? Where's your level of discipline there? And I, I have a lesson really early on called the spillover effect. You said it before. It's like, everything we do goes into everything we do and and how that spillover from our off-court life spills into our on-court life, but also how the on-court life spills back. And I think that's really important. So yeah, I find it really fascinating how it's evolving as well. But yes, the nuts and bolts of squash is still there, but there, there's a lot more of a zoomed out picture in that sense. So yeah, mm. good stuff, man. Yeah. Um, so listen, in all your years of seeing so many great players coming through your academy, but not even yours, like, you know, kind of in different places, British mm. Junior Opens, what do you think are the behaviors that separate the good from the great? Um, so for, for me, I think it's the ability to win on your worst days. And I think that's what the top players can do. They can still win when they're not playing their best squash. And that maybe takes the physical, that maybe takes the mental. Because really at the end of the day, if you're playing incredibly well technically and tactically, I think most players technically and tactically, if you've got a good base fitness and mental, it gets to there. But those are the things that are the uncontrollables sometimes. Sometimes the uncontrollables are like, I don't have a good feel in my hands today. So my technical's there. And tactically today, maybe my physical isn't there. So I can't move the ball like I want to do it tactically or I can't play at the pace tactically I want to play because of the physical. So mm-hmm. really the mental side of things when players, because that is a controllable and that's something that if I can, you know, I think looking at like Ali Farag, Mohamed El-Shabagi, Nur El-Shabini, um, Hanya, uh, just Paul Cole, like these, these players, you've, you've seen them win when they're not playing their best squash. And the top players for me in my experience are the ones winning when they're not playing their best squash. Mm. And yeah, yeah, I had a, a lovely you know, podcast almost like a couple of years ago now with Laura Massaro and she had, she had a nickname on the tour. Um, find a way Laura, you know, because um, all it like, there's people like her coaches were outside her physios were going, there's no way you're winning this match. You know, you were on the table last night, getting massaged, your body's broken, you know, emotionally, you're not feeling great. She always found a way, she found a way to get over that. And, you know, she, she, you know, partly the kind of the steely northerner, you know, kind of growing up with a little bit of a chip on her shoulder. And I just love that. Find a way, Laura, or find the way, Laura, that, that became her kind of nickname. And yeah, Yeah. definitely see that from those top players. Don't you? I love that. Yeah. I was, I elaborate on that a little bit where 
some players, they just hate losing. And the top players, they hate losing more than they love winning. And I think that's a really big character trait to have in a, a top, top player is they'll win just because they hate losing. Mm. And they're the players that I really love working with. Mm, that's interesting. And I'm just, just a bit of a pushback on that. The hating losing, but then like if that, if that, like if I think about it, like levers and dials, like mm. if that hating losing dial is really kind of cranked up, when does that become like, like playing with too much pressure, playing with resentment, playing on like that edge of just going, I'm going to implode here. But what do you think of that? Yeah, it's, you've got to have this balance between yes, love winning, but then hate losing where some days you're feeling really good and you love it and you love that winning and you love like slotting it and you're feeling really good. They're the days where I feel like you love winning because you don't really want to get off. You know, you're like kind of sad to get to match ball sometimes. You're like, <laughs> I wish this would just go a little bit longer. And then some days you're like, oh my God, I can't get to match ball quick enough. Mm-hmm. Or it's really uncomfortable. And some days you just don't want to be there, but you just want to get through it because you want to get to the next day where you feel like you may love winning again. Mm-hmm. Or you get to the end of it and you lift the trophy and you're like, this is amazing. This is why I do it. But you've got to have the both because you can never play well every day. So there's a balance there. Love it. Well answered. Yeah. Well answered. Put you on the spot there. Love it. <laughs> so listen, yeah. you've been in the US now for you know 10 years. There's been an amazing evolution. I think the recent British Junior Open was testament to where US junior squash is going. Um, mm. but where, where do you see it in the next few years? You know, obviously you've got the Egyptians still dominating, US mm. players haven't maybe broken through on the kind of senior level just yet. But yeah, your predictions for the next maybe 10 years of US squash. Yeah, breaking it down to kind of like three categories, the men's professional the women's professional and the juniors I think the juniors and there's a kind of high performance area like you got the Timmy Brownells Spencer Lovejoys Andrew Douglas that kind of age as well coming through I think they've given it a really good go mm-hmm. I loved that Gilly episode because he talked about like that first generation of, did. it's still very young you know it like squash it's still very very young and look at Egypt and England and Australia and Pakistan and India they're very old squash playing countries and there's a lot of experience there. And mm-hmm. if you look at the States, we're just starting to accumulate that experience. Mm-hmm. But we know as players and now coaches, it takes a lot of experience to get to the top and it takes a lot of lessons learned. And I think we're still going through that, that stage as maybe professional, the women have definitely arrived. Well, that I was going to say probably like a bit kind of my faux pas. Yeah. Like if I'm saying, oh, there's going to be no breakthrough at the senior level for US women in the top 16, like, like, so mm-hmm. get bad on me there. But yeah, the US women, no. like they've, they've really, you know, kind of not got to figure it out, but, you know, have started to maybe prove what's, what they, what, what they're capable of. Yeah. And there's actually a, probably a good conversation to have of why are the women doing it? And, mm-hmm. and the men, not saying the men aren't, but the women so much, not more successful, but they have yeah, had on, on paper, success. call it as it is. It is. They, like, you know, it is. What, what do you, why do you think that is? I don't, I think there's some strong characters in there. I, mm. I you know, Amanda's a great friend and the, the Olivia's Sabrina, you've mm. got Marina coming through. Mm. Um, honestly, I mm. think it's just a really good, strong characters who just sharpen each other. They push each other. But then they all have got that vision of like, just because I'm from the US doesn't mean I'm not meant to be good. So they have that chip on their shoulder as well. And I feel like that's amazing. Now look look at the men. 
who's the highest ranked man male Todd Harity or would it be Todd or, and Tim well I, I mean, again I haven't yeah but I assume Todd at the moment I can't quite think of his ranking right now mm. and then you look at like Gilly and Julian Chris mm-hmm. um, those guys were like pioneers but they had no experience of doing that then so then the girls kind of had that chip on their shoulder I feel mm-hmm. like they've all got that so maybe they have that yeah. the guys were just figuring it out as they go not as they go but I know maybe crop of players there and then you look at the junior coming through mm. the juniors coming through every year we're getting better and better british open better next year even better next year even better the coaching side of things in the u.s getting better every year it's just a matter of time yes. and experience because the foundation is there the center's there the people are there it's set up for success it's just exciting to what been here for 10 years watching it grow especially from the west coast you know, look where West Coast squash was five years ago. Mm. Wasn't really strong. Now look at the nationals. We were the highest um, represented state at the nationals. We had 50 players right? in California. Oh. If you go back five years, we probably had five players from California. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, looking yeah. at the growth, even just in California, it's, it's amazing. So British Open, the growth, there's no limit to this now. Um, Incredible. And athletes and looking around, the depth is ridiculous, ridiculous. And yeah. I was, so I was testament to that when I when I when I turned up there, I was like, wow, okay, there's some serious quality knocking about here, and like early rounds as I was like, whoa, okay, there's yeah, I can really see. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just that experience thing now. Mm, we just yeah. got to come with that now. Exactly. Yeah. Like well. The, the patience has been there, but like, it's, it's a, how you, how are you being patient? The attitude and the attitude looks like it's been worked away for the last 10, 15, 20 years mm-hmm. in a positive way. So um, listen, Charlie, wow. I've thoroughly enjoyed this so far. This has been incredible. Loads of different avenues. We probably could spend another two hours on this, but I think always like a nice place that I like to close with is, is whether there's something that I've not brought up that you would like to mention. If not, is there like a strong message that you can leave uh, the listeners with? Yeah. I, I mean, it's just probably a case of, where it's at right now just as a coach or if you're in a different environment or whatever sector of work you're in you've got something to learn from everyone and you're not above or below it's just about enjoying what you do and and even if you're not really enjoying what you do you've got to go and find a certain part of something you enjoy about it and when you find that sweet spot or it's maybe your co-workers, maybe it's not the, the, the actual work you do, it's the people you work with, or maybe it is the work you do and not the people. Mm-hmm. You've just got to throw yourself into what you love. Or if it's not, if it's the five-a-side soccer game you play in the evenings, I feel like that's about living and that's about life and about enjoying the moments as well. I think I got this from Paul Asiante. It's like kind of love what you do and love every minute of practice, love minute of the conversations you have. And I feel like I get that from you and your energy. It's just this love about, and, it's in, and that's infectious. And when you surround yourself with those people who love what they do, you start to be like, oh, okay, I'm going to go do that as well. So, um, yeah, just looking at what you're doing, we can all get caught up in the world we live in and want more. Mm-hmm. But the minute you step back and you like zoom out a little bit and you're like, okay, what am I going to do today? Which makes me really happy you end up having a great day and I feel like just love what you do and if you don't just zoom out a little bit have a great attitude be infectious be passionate enthusiastic 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 <laughs> you love it 
Mate, well said. Well, listen, it's the start of your day there. It's the end of my day. I've had an incredibly long day, but this has been like one of the funnest, most energy things I've done. So, and yeah, listen, kudos to you and hope uh, the best part of this hour has been uh, been in the moment, been present and no distractions. It's just been me and you talking across the globe pretty much, but it's been thoroughly yeah. good fun, man. And so many strong messages. Charlie, listen, you're doing an incredible job. I feel really lucky to have had this conversation, but listen, the squash world is better off with you there, man. And you're, you're, you're kind of, you're, putting that ball down the field you're putting the shirt in a better place so thank you for all the work you're doing um where can you signpost people to so if people want to check you out or follow you do you want to just give a shout out to your twitter instagram areas where people can check you out yeah it's uh instagram is uh cj squash academy you can find us on there we post lots of uh like academy content lessons tournaments and the best thing about actually uh this account as well it's like funny actually because the kids the kids run it it's like their account as well, which awesome. is fun. So it's it's almost their thing and my thing. It's the academies. So, you know, someone's doing a funny lesson. It's like, okay, let's go and put that on there or some content hero tournament. They take it over in a way, which is cool. Brilliant. So yeah, be careful. Be careful when you reach out. <laughs> <laughs> That's wicked. And mate, well, what a, again, what another lovely way to build that culture and build that philosophy that you're you're doing. So, mate, really well done. Thoroughly enjoyed the chat. You know what? We're going to be speaking more in the future. I know that. So, um, listen, have a great rest of your day, and I look forward to catching up soon. Thanks, Jesse. Cheers. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.